The sermon reading this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath, Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what you have heard what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his own way. Thanks, Peter. If you'd like to keep your Bibles open at that passage in Luke 4, that's what we're going to be looking at in a bit more detail now. Just thought I'd remind you as well that even though we're no longer live streaming our services, we are still recording the sermons and they're available on the website or if you podcast, there's also a a podcast channel that the church has and so you can be listening to them and uh, either re-listening or catching up if you miss some. So, Just thought I'd let you know because I'm I'm aware that some people um, don't know about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that this time that we spend uh, looking in a bit more detail at this part of your word uh, might grow the significance of Jesus in our hearts and minds that we want to live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it possible to be impressed by Jesus, but still reject him? Is it possible to like the things that Jesus says and does and offers, but not put your trust in him? Is it possible to feel a sense of connection with Jesus, but not to follow him? I think the answer to that question from this passage today is clearly yes. 
Jesus' hometown folk who knew him growing up, who knew his family, they were impressed by him and the amazing things that he had to say. But in the end, they rejected him and ended up trying to throw him off a cliff, trying to kill him. That's the progression that we see in this passage when Jesus goes back to his hometown. And as we follow along Jesus' journey home, I think what it highlights for us is that the most attractive Jesus, the Jesus who people are most interested in, is the Jesus who offers something good but perhaps doesn't claim too much about himself or of me. And I think we're going to discover that if that's the Jesus that we want, if that's the Jesus that we expect, then perhaps we also will end up rejecting him. So let's have a a look at it. Our passage begins with Jesus returning to his hometown region and then to his actual hometown. So Galilee is the region that Jesus was from. It's up in the north of Israel. He'd previously been down in the south of, in Judea, where Jerusalem is. And so he's returning to Galilee, the region of his hometown. And now he actually comes to his town where he grew up, Nazareth. And the impression that people have of him is clearly a good one. Have a look at what It says of him, sorry, this is before he gets to Nazareth, but in the other towns in Galilee. (coughs) Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread over all the countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So Jesus returns to his hometown region. News about him is spreading. He's teaching in the synagogues. Synagogues are like Jewish churches. People are praising him, and then he actually comes to his actual hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up. Now, they do say that when uh, a famous person, say a, a famous band, returns to their hometown, the hometown gig is really the big one, the one that matters. You know, people can play in stadiums in front of tens of thousands of people around the world, but what really matters is when they come home and play in their old high school hall. You know, how are the kids from home? going to receive them, the kids who used to build cubby houses with or ride bikes with in the street, what will they think? And that's kind of like what Jesus is doing here. He's returning for his hometown gig. How is it going to go? So we hear that Jesus did what he did in the other towns. He went into the synagogue to teach, and here we actually get told what it is that he's teaching. And what we see is that it is an amazing message of good news. And it is attractive and appealing and people are drawn to it. So he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads from chapter 61 and we get told here what he reads. It's here in verse 18 and 19. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So as I said, those verses that Jesus read are from Isaiah chapter 61. And to understand the significance of those verses that Jesus read, there are two things about the background to that that we need to know about. One is the return from exile and captivity in Babylon. And the other is the year of Jubilee. So I'm going to 
uh, explain those two briefly. Firstly, the exile was when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 587 BC and basically took all of the people away to captivity in Babylon. It was probably the most significant event negatively in the history of, of Jerusalem at that time. And it left a massive mark on, on, the, on the people of, of Israel. And in the lead up to that, to that event, the prophets had been warning them that it was coming. And they were saying, this is coming because you are turning away from God. And God will not have people who are called by his name continue to be uh, living as if not following him. And so that the, the conquest came as a, as a punishment for that. But the prophets had also promised a restoration after that, a release from captivity, a return to the land, a restoration. And that did happen. In 538 BC, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and the Persians sent the people of Jerusalem back home. But it was never quite the same. They were always under somebody's thumb whether it was the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They were the poor, the oppressed, the prisoners. They were the downtrodden. And so the prophets continued to look to and point to a return and a restoration that would be real and significant. And prophecies like Isaiah chapter 61 speak into that promise. God was promising real good news for the poor. Freedom for the prisoners and for the oppressed. Even those with physical problems, recovery of sight for the blind. Clearly this is bigger than just a political restoration. That's the first kind of background to the Isaiah prophecy that Jesus reads, return from exile. The second background is the year of Jubilee. You see, right back when God gave the land to Israel, when they were coming into the land, he told them that every 50 years was to be a year of restoration and recovery for the land and for the people. That was called the year of Jubilee. He said, don't plant any crops, give the land a rest, let, let things just grow as they will and eat what grows naturally. God will provide for you. Debts should be cancelled. Imagine that, all debts cancelled every 50 years. Prisoners and slaves released from captivity. Family land that had been forfeited due to debt must be returned to the family so that it would be a family inheritance to continue on. It was this remarkable demonstration of grace and renewal that was enshrined into the law of how God's people were to live. Now, there's no evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever actually practiced in Israel. But do you see what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah? He's promising a jubilee from God, a time when they would experience that kind of grace and restoration and favour from God, cancelling of debts, release of prisoners, restoration. God would do for Israel what he wanted them to do for each other. Wipe the slate clean, start again, make things new and fresh, a fresh start with God. I hope you can see how good that is. You know, what a great message. It was huge. This goes well beyond, as I said, any kind of just 
political or social change and restoration. It's not just a geographical return to the land that had already happened for these people. It's a return to God and the blessings that come from that, a restoration as the loved and forgiven people of God. So those were the words that Jesus read in the synagogue that day, and then he sat down, and all eyes were told were on him. Now, I think we hear that and we think it's something strange has happened, as if you know someone's got up the front, as if to preach, read the Bible, and then gone and sat down. Everyone's kind of looking around at him going, well, aren't you going to say anything? But actually sitting was the posture of teaching in synagogues. And so he wasn't sitting, doing. He wasn't, they weren't looking at him because he was doing something unusual. They were looking at him because they were expecting that he was about to speak. They were waiting with bated breath. And he did speak. And what he said was a massive claim. See it in verse 21. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you hear what he's saying there? That amazing promise of God is fulfilled because I am here. It's fulfilled in me. And actually, if you just, from this point in Luke, track through the rest of Luke's gospel and see the people that Jesus connects with and the blessing that he brings to them, you see it's the kind of people that Isaiah talks about in that prophecy. It's the people who know that they need him, that come to him and call out to him. You see the blind man calling out to Jesus and literally his eyes are opened and his sight is restored. You see the crippled woman who is set free, we are told, from her disability. You see the rich man, Lazarus, who is far from God, comes running to Jesus because he knows that he needs them. And with Jesus, he gets a fresh start with God and it changes his relationship with money. He gives it to the poor. And again and again, we see that impact that Jesus has, one person at a time. But ultimately, those are just glimpses of what Jesus came to do. His main work was restore people to God through the forgiveness of sin by his death on the cross. And he did that. But he also said that he will come back again to make a fresh start with our creator that is seen in the creation and in every aspect of life that we can see and hear and touch that is good at every level and it will be wonderful. And clearly Jesus' hometown people recognised the goodness of what he was saying. They were amazed at these words of grace that came from his his mouth. But then we soon discover that their reaction to him wasn't all good. And I reckon that it's the clash between the amazing message that Jesus speaks and the massive claim about himself that goes with that that we get the unusual, the surprising response from his hometown folk that ends as badly as it does so that they go from everyone speaking well of him in verse 22 to trying to throw him off a cliff in verse 29. You know, if this was unfolding on Twitter, someone would have posted a that escalated quickly meme by now. And I think the surprising thing... Sorry, I think it's in that surprising overlap between being impressed by Jesus and wanting to kill him 
that we perhaps learn something helpful. So let's have a look at how the rest of the passage unfolds. As I said, it began like it did in the other towns. Everyone was impressed with him. They were amazed at the gracious words that he was saying, and so they should be. He was speaking words of amazing grace, that restoration and renewal and freedom from God. That is an attractive message. And most people, if they get any kind of sense, any kind of glimpse of the goodness of what Jesus offers, at some level, it it speaks to a longing in us and we see the goodness of it. You know, it's like if you remember a few weeks ago when the angels at Jesus' birth announced peace on earth. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? You know, from primary school kids to beauty pageant queens to world leaders, peace on earth is something that we want. Everyone can see the goodness of it. But I think the rest of that verse, verse 22, begins to give us a clue as to why things go badly. They say to each other, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, I don't think they're saying that in a positive sense, as if like, you know, wow, to imagine that these amazing words could come from the lips of this kid that we knew growing up. Isn't that wonderful? He's one of ours, Joe's boy. Now, I think what they're saying is, who does he think he is? Yeah, I used to know him. He's Joseph's kid. He grew up down the street from me. We used to play cricket after school. And now he's claiming to be someone special. Where does he get off? It's the classic tall poppy syndrome, right, that Australians seem to be so good at. We like to see people do well as long as they don't get too big for their boots. You know, like, like the NRL star who used to play in the local Little League. You know, and I used to be better than him, we'd say. You know, he's not that special. He just got a few good breaks. Actually, when, when I was in, in high school, I used to play for Dundas Valley Rugby Club. We had a reputation for being thugs, and I think it was probably well-earned. But um, there was one, one guy in my team who went on to play as the captain for the Scottish rugby team. So you, know, you see him in the internationals against the Wallabies and so on. And I, I remember having those same kind of thoughts. He was just the guy that I used to play with. I mean, he was always a good player, but he was just the guy that I played with. And so it kind of brought, me, brought him down a little bit in my eyes and to how I saw him. And I feel like Nazareth and their attitude to Jesus, that could be any town in Australia as far as our tall poppy syndrome approach goes. This is just Joseph's son. We know him, not that special. But if you hear the last two weeks, perhaps you can hear how they're calling him Joseph's son compares to what we've heard Jesus called already. What did God say about him? This is my son. Even the devil, when tempting him, said, aren't you the son of God? Aren't you the son of God? Aren't you the son of God? And so we get this contrast. Son of God, son of God, son of God. This is just Joseph's son, isn't it? You see how they're bringing him down in their estimation of him? And Jesus' response in verse 23, I think, shows that that's what they mean. That's what they're trying to do, to bring him down to size. They're basically saying, prove yourself. Do hear with your own people what apparently we hear you've been doing elsewhere. You know, you might be able to impress those people over there, but you're not going to pull the wool over our eyes that quickly. We know you, Joseph's son. Prove yourself. And so that familiarity with Jesus, those assumptions about Jesus, are creating a barrier 
for them accepting him, stopping them from accepting him. And like Jesus says in verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. As much as they might want to claim a connection with Jesus, claim an ownership perhaps of Jesus, Jesus says foreigners are more likely to get anything out of him than his hometown does, just like the prophets of old. And Jesus' words to them kind of expose the truth of what he's saying. It's in that moment that the crowd turns in an instant. They go from being impressed with Jesus to being a murderous lynch mob. They drive him out of the synagogue, out of the town, up to the brow of the hill and try to throw him off the cliff. But this is not his time. It turns out that it will be that Jesus dies at the hands of a crowd who don't like the big claims that he is making. But not yet, and not these people. And so somehow, miraculously, Jesus just walks through the crowd and goes on his way. And I think it's in those last words that we see the real tragedy of what goes on for these people. Jesus went away, and he left them with none of the good things that he was promising. The saviour of the world was standing in their midst, but they rejected him. They liked what he had to say, but they couldn't accept him and the claims that he was making, claims that didn't fit with what they wanted Jesus to be like. You know, Joseph's boy, one of ours, but not more than that. And so he went away and they missed out. What a tragedy. And I think this brings us back to that question that we started with. Is it possible to be impressed by Jesus but still reject him? Clearly, yes. The message of Jesus is so appealing at so many levels, but not everyone who likes that or who looks like some of that accepts him. And sometimes those who are familiar with Jesus and assumed to have some kind of a claim on Jesus and the good things that he offers, end up rejecting him and missing out. If I could give, I guess, a fairly broad example, I do wonder whether our Christianised culture that has existed in Australia over the last decades or, or century that is quickly disappearing looks somewhat like that hometown reception of Jesus. It wasn't that long ago that our culture generally had a fairly positive view of Jesus and of Christianity. People would acknowledge, of course, that Jesus is good and good for you. I mean, who would deny that? That cultures that are shaped by Christianity are generally the better for it. People would send their kids to Sunday school even if they didn't go themselves because they knew and expected that that would be good for them as long as they don't take it too seriously. And at the same time, most people would assume that whatever good things Jesus might offer, of course that's for me. Jesus had an accepted place in people's lives, but a limited one. But once the the claims of Jesus start to not fit the mould that we want him to fit into, or to rub against those things that we hold dear... Well, increasingly you notice, don't you, that our culture has no place for him. We're marching Jesus to the brow of the hill, ready to throw him off. We've got to the point where people are claiming that somehow Jesus is bad for children. that's, That's where we're at now. It's just staggering. And it's only going to increase. 
But of course, it's really helpful just to point the finger to people out there and not actually consider what this might be saying to us, you know, people who are sitting in a church to hear about Jesus on a Sunday. Now, I would love to think that this is not a warning for any of us here, but it would be naive, wouldn't it, to think so? In fact, it would be foolish, I think. The Bible tells us that the mark of a true believer is not those who don't need to be warned. It's those who hear the warning and who listen to it and who heed the warning. Now, we need to be, make sure that we are not like Jesus' hometown folk, impressed by Jesus, liking some of the good things that he offers, the connection with God, good morals, peace from anxiety in an uncertain world. And those are such good things that Jesus does give, that we assume some kind of connection with him because we sit in a church on Sunday, but not in the end accept the massive claim that he makes of himself and over me. Jesus came to restore us to God. And he has done that by dying and rising to life again. And he will come again to make what he has done a physical reality that changes the entire world around us in every sense. And he will rule over that world in a wonderful new creation. And he calls every person to get on board with that now and to trust him and to follow him. Now, does that sound like a two hours on Sunday hobby in the side of my life kind of thing? Of course not. It is life-changing. And I wonder if a helpful question as we kind of finish up reflecting on this is, as I think about Jesus, who is changing whom? Is Jesus, who came to restore us to God, is he changing you the more you get to know him, the more you find out about him? Does the hugeness of Jesus' claim over your life match the goodness of the things that he offers? And is that changing you? Or are you changing him to fit him into the box that you've made for him, a convenient Jesus, a downgraded Jesus with some downgraded benefits? Or perhaps to put it another way, will he be for us a hometown kind of Jesus, the familiar son of Joseph who we're impressed by and like some of the things that he says and that he offers? Or will he be for us the son of God, the Lord who offers us not just some nice things, but what we desperately need. If only we would recognise the massive claims that he's making over our lives. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Jesus, it, it, there is no denying it, makes huge claims about himself. And Father, we ask that every single one of us here today will re- remember, recognise, acknowledge those claims along with the goodness of what he offers for us. Father, we do long to see the the wonderful blessing that Jesus has achieved through his death and resurrection. We do long to see that transforming the very nature of the world around us. And so we ask that you'll help us to be people who live with that hope, who cling to that hope and who are changed day by day because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.